All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nicks? Fuck it, man. I've got uh, Robbie Robertson on the show today. He was the guitar player for the band. He's got a book coming out. It's out. It's called Testimony, and there's also a big box set of The Last Waltz, which uh, I had some nice emotional respite watching it watching that time those guys all those people that were in that movie but talking to Robbie was uh if you love music you know from back when music had intent and some political purpose and also you know just it was that time man you know the time the crashing waves of the of the 60s into the 70s the last gasp uh, until the resurrection of Americana but but it was a great talk. But look, I got to talk about something. I can't. He gets to a point where you really got to ask yourself, what is it? What's your responsibility personally to the country and as an American and as somebody who, who, who believes in this country? I mean, this... You know, this refugee ban, I, I mean, I haven't been sleeping and I wake up with nightmares and I wake up with, you know, totalitarian nightmares. I'm sure a lot of you understand what I'm saying. And, and the, the issue is, it's like, it, this is not the refugee ban. These, it's no longer a, a right wing, left wing issue. It's not about Republicans or Democrats. It's not about conservatives and liberals. I mean, it's really about being an American. Seriously, I mean, I don't have to remind everyone that, you know, we have the privilege to live in this country. And because of that, we have a moral duty to protect oppressed people and to allow asylum to those who seek it. That's that's what this country's about. I mean, if anyone who calls himself the president of the United States of America wants to prevent us from executing that moral duty, that that person is being a shitty American. And I don't even have to mention names because it's about America. And it's our responsibility as citizens to override that, that moral transgression, that disregard for American principles and foundations. I mean, seriously, you should not be able to be afforded the freedoms of this country if you can't protect and uphold them for others. That's this is an American thing. It's an it's being a good American. And look, if your anger or ideology or mangled religious beliefs have disabled you from being capable of compassion, mercy, empathy, charity, decency, I guess I'm not speaking to you. So you can sit there and fume. If you are an autocratic loyalist or a totalitarian apologist, and you know that and you're okay with it, I guess I'm not speaking to you. So sit there and fume. Turn me off. If your comfort and or partisan hopes have insulated you or enable you to rationalize what is happening, I'm speaking to you. Step up. Be a good American. If you are debilitated by your fear, 
I know it. I know it. I feel it. If and, and you're turning inward or trying to distract yourself, I'm speaking to you. So step up. Be a good American. If you if you feel detached or despondent or hopeless or never you, you never were a political person, it's not too late to engage in some civic responsibility. Step up. Be a good American. And if you are angry and engaged in fighting the good fight in an active way, thank you for being a good American. Godspeed. And if you were one of thousands who protested this weekend, thank you. And if you are with the ACLU or support the ACLU and help to force a stay that will prevent people who arrived with valid green cards from being deported, thank you. No one is helpless. If you're angry, you can do things. Are you angry? Good. Stay angry, but be focused. Focus, focus, focus. This isn't a partisan agenda. It's an American agenda. Step up. Be a good American. And also, look, if you're a celebrity and you're planning to attend the Oscars next month, particularly if you're nominated, you need to think long and hard about that because one of your fellow nominees has just been barred from attending by way of presidential decree. I, you, you know, I, I, this tone is what it is. You know, I want to be able to, to live with myself. And there is zero point in anyone doing anything, having a podcast, going to award shows, entertaining ourselves, if we're not going to fight like hell to protect the foundational structures of this country that allow us to do these things in the first place. I mean, are you telling me we Americans can't create jobs, rebuild infrastructure, have reasonable immigration and trade policy and health care? without being full of hate or compromising the foundations of our democracy or disregarding the Constitution? I mean, come on! Fuck! I woke up today, called my state representatives, told them how I felt, asked them to speak up or forego my support. I made some donations to organizations working to support war-displaced refugees around the world. These are fucking women and children, shattered lives, nowhere to go. The International Rescue Committee, IRC, uh, UNICEF, Mercy Corps, Doctors Without Borders, help out, step up, be a good American. Should also donate to the ACLU. We're going to need them. This is a fight. But it's good to know, even in a seemingly futile and hopeless situation, that direct action can have direct results. No one is helpless. If you're angry, you can do things. Just step up. This isn't a partisan agenda. I am not being partisan it's an american agenda all right 
okay. Hey, hi. I guess I should point out that I am recording this on Saturday. Shit could have gone down yesterday. For better, for worse. I don't know. All right. You know, when I got uh, the opportunity to speak to Robbie Robertson, I was excited. I was... uh, uh, not nervous, but there was there's a lot there, and and I don't know when you grew up, and I sort of missed the '60s and 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 the time that followed. I was you know born in 1963, so those band records came out in what '69, '72, '70. So I was not formed, but it was around me. It's it's strange, you know, what we are nostalgic for and and what we reach back to in these times of uh, horror and discontent. You know, the America that you know, that I get nostalgic for, you know, it, it's sort of music centric and it's sort of what I took in when I was a young person, you know, there was uh, it everything, everything seemed uh, exciting and radical and, and, uh, you know, like important in the late sixties and early seventies. And, and I do have a, a sort of template for that in my head, though I missed it emotionally because I was a child, but the music obviously is something we all relate to. And, and, I hadn't seen The Last Waltz, which I think actually came out in the mid to late 70s. So it was, I was like 13 or 14. But I remember seeing it the first time in the movie theater, Martin Scorsese's Last Waltz, which was the last concert of the band. And all those people coming out to play with them. Some of them I didn't even know at the time. But I knew there was something sort of coming to a close and something very connected to the music and something very raw and very earnest about it. And certainly the band... Uh, were an earnest bunch and a very unique outfit that I didn't, I didn't grow to appreciate till much later. But to see Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Van Morrison and Muddy Waters and Eric Clapton, the staple singer, Emmylou Harris. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm leaving out some, but I, I wasn't there. I don't need to. <laughs> it's not like I'm forgetting someone who I was at the performance of. But I watched it the other night in the new Blu-ray and I, you know, I got choked up. I, you know, I get choked up a lot, but now just for, it certainly wasn't a simpler time, but it was a, a more focused time. It was easier to see some road to uh, the truth, to the facts. And there was something more intimate about the social landscape and certainly about the community of these musicians and of the country, I think. Maybe I'm romanticizing, but nonetheless, uh I was excited to sit down with Robbie. I, I didn't know what to expect, and it was great. There was a lot of things I didn't know that I should have known. I did not realize that the, the band was the band for Bob Dylan when he went electric and was booed off stage or attempted to, to be booed off stage. I didn't, I didn't know that I should have known it, but I'm glad I found out for the first time from Robbie Robertson. All right, so Mr. Robertson's in good form, lucid. And uh, likes to talk. So, uh, uh, and as I said before, his recent memoir, Testimony, is available wherever you get books. And this is me and my conversation with Robbie Robertson from the band. Well, this, I like this. Thanks, uh, man. This, it's got a great. A great feeling here. Wait, and is, is this a garage? I think it, yeah, it was a garage for probably. It's probably built in the early twenties, so it was probably for uh, that car. And then I put a floor in, 
and then eventually moved all my shit in here for my entire life. This is the repository of all my life shit. It's just uh, nice to take it all in. Yeah. And, you know, it, uh, it either all starts out in a garage or ends up in a garage. Yeah, mine ended up in a garage. That could go either way too. The ending in a garage that could either be a good That's thing, true. but you didn't you didn't start in a garage. Well, there was garages, you know, and this house that the band found up by Woodstock, the pink house, the pink house, big pink, we called it. Yeah, and in the basement. Yeah, which I've I don't even know that I've ever said this before. Yeah. But when you went down into the basement, it wasn't just the basement. It was a garage, too. Oh, really? Yeah, because it was a big door that could open and you could drive a car in. Okay. But we never did because we wanted to use that space for right. making music instead. It's funny. that that I think that environment, that and I was thinking about this, and we'll go back uh, in time in a minute but like it seems to me that whatever happened in that house you know with dylan and with you guys seemed to set the standard for for how to make that kind of music for to how to make connected sort of earthy uh you know music that evolves you know as a group i mean it seems like now there's a whole resurgence of people aspiring to be what you guys were you know at the time when we did the basement tapes yeah and this idea of making music in your home right and and that that was special because i'd had no real expectations to it so it had such a relaxed atmosphere yeah and it even was like nobody was supposed to hear this right and wasn't dylan it's sort of a like a, he was sort of uh kind of considering his mortality after an accident and just kind of hanging out at the time if you know he had had this accident yeah. and and he'd hurt himself pretty bad right that. he had to wear like a, a neck brace for for quite a while but after that and when we found this house yeah it became like the clubhouse right you know where guys would go every day and hang out like who like a street gang kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, you guys. But were there yeah. other people, hangers-on, people N around? No, not no. some, but yeah. not, not too much. Yeah. And it was a place to go every day, like a workshop right. or something. Yeah. It turned into this. And this had been a dream of mine, if we could only have the clubhouse right. where we would go every day and we could lock ourselves away from the world yeah. and create something right. that we are meant to do, that and, we are on a mission to do. And when I took Bob out there to see it, yeah. at first, you know, because he'd only made music really in recording studios right. and things. And when I took him out and showed him this, yeah. all of a sudden I could see a light went off over his head, and he was like, "Can you, can you really make music in here? And can you put it down on tape?" And yeah. All of this was a revelation, and at that time, nobody was doing this. Right. It was really unusual, and it was something that I had in the back of my mind that I thought Les Paul did. Oh that really? Les Paul when, when he was when he was screwing around with the electronics, right? Yeah, he, he had a house, right? 
and he had like an echo chamber in the side of a cliff or yeah. something. <laughs> I, I thought, that's the way you do it. And when I heard his records, the records that he made with Mary Ford, yeah. they didn't sound like anything else. Right. That how do you make a record that doesn't sound like anything else and it's in your own environment? Woo. Right. Let's g- so anyway, I'd been talking to the other guys in the band and to Bob about this for a long time. And when we found that place, yeah. it was like, this is it. This is Valhalla. This is where we can go, yeah. hang out, yeah. and, and create and do something that has nothing to do with the rest of the world. And also at that time, you know, I got to figure you're now be, you know, recording in your garage. I can sit here and do a multi-track recording. I don't know how, but you know, people can take the equipment that's provided for us now, which is very easy. There's nothing you know cumbersome or analog about it, and and make these uh, you know whatever they want in in a fairly small amount of time. But you guys, you must add like you know dozens of instruments everywhere. You're in that space, but you still got to deal with analog equipment. So, I imagine that uh, that the the ability to really change much, you know, once you locked into a groove and made your decisions, you know, was not a labor that you necessarily did that often. We didn't think about it, you know, the technology of it. We had a little reel-to-reel tape recorder. Yeah. And a little tiny mixer. Like an 8-track? Um, no, no. Like four? No, stereo. <laughs> yeah. It was a, you know, it was a right. two-track tape recorder. Yeah. Um, and the mixer, though, so you didn't, you couldn't overdub anything. No, 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 no. No, we could record, though, yeah, yeah. on one of the tracks. Yeah. And then record something on the other track. Right, right, right. On it, that was possible to to do. Right, but it wasn't that necessary. Yeah, you know, whatever we were gonna do, we were gonna just do it. It wasn't a matter of, oh, let's get some ideas later. But we did the idea of experimenting with sound and trying stuff and everything. It all took, you know, it all had a birth there in the basement. Right, but like when you guys, because the basement taste is a, is a beautiful record, and you know, it had a weird life. You know, I did I did a little reading on it. You know, it, it did. You know, you didn't necessarily plan to release it, right? right? Right, but I, I have to assume that when you say experiment, that you weren't, you're not, you're not talking about you know uh, weird sounds. You you know you're talking about you know creating the space for to take these chances within the the type of music you did. You know you weren't looking to to do prog music or anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, Derek Trucks was mm-hmm. in here, and he talked about you know when he was a kid, he had done some recording with uh, with Rick and Levon up in Woodstock. And that, you know, he is sort of an inspired kind of prodigy, Derek Trucks is. Yeah. And he said that those two guys, you know, they were impressed with his playing, but I said, I think they told him, the advice they gave him was, you got to let it breathe, man. Uh-huh. You know, and, and I think that a lot of, you know, the band sound and the time you guys took and the space that you were able to allow it happen within all the different instruments was really uh, the great gift you guys gave to music in a way. That there was a, it was obviously very tight music, but there was definitely a groove and there was space and you just felt like everyone was um, represented. In, in your early youth of playing music, yeah, it's how much can you do. Right. You know what I mean? You're you're reaching and you're pushing and you're you're wanting to make a big noise, a big special noise. Yeah. And after a while, 
you start to realize that takes up a lot of energy and it's not adding up to as much as when it does breathe. Yeah. And that it's it, it's those spaces sometimes between the notes that mean as much as the notes. Right. And so then you start hearing things about, hey, hey man, it's it's what you leave out, you know, and, and stuff like that. So they were probably telling Derek yeah. You know, you're playing too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So when when you say that like you know by the time you got to uh to outside of Woodstock there, I mean, I just recently watched, you know, they sent the book over and they sent the uh, the big box of the last waltz. And I hadn't watched that in years. And I get choked up watching it. I don't <laughs> Do you ever watch it again? I I don't watch it. I've I've seen pieces of yeah. it. And I don't watch it unless I'm working on it. Yeah, you know because I, you know, sure, sure, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah, no, of course not, right? But I mean, but there's something about my because I'm 53, so I missed most of it. I was too young. But when I watch it, it just feels that there was a community and a unity and mm. a respect that everybody had for each other that uh, that is very heartwarming to me. And and it just felt like that whole crew of people, not just the band, but all the people that played on there, like Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Van Morrison, Dr. John, Muddy Waters, Staple Singers, Emily Harris, everybody. You, I, all, I always feel like you all knew each other and that, you know, you kind of, you know, you ran into each other on the road and there was all this mutual respect and understanding of each other's music. It was Is that real? Am I projecting that? There was a big crossroads of music between all the artists that yeah. were involved in in the last waltz. And it, it felt like w- there was people representing different parts of music yeah. that we held in high respect. Right. We said, okay, who's going to represent the music of New Orleans? We got to get Dr. John here. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The blues, Chicago blues. Don't you got to have Muddy Waters for that? And, and Absolutely. Uh, Paul Butterfield. And Paul Butterfield, yeah. of course, who was an old friend of ours. It's a very funny story. What? Levon and I robbed yeah. uh, um, Paul Butterfield of his uh, marijuana stash uh-huh. one time in, in Chicago <laughs> when we first met him. Yeah. And he was horrified and wanted to kill us. Uh-huh. And, and we had to figure out... We ran into him a year later, and we had to figure out for him not to kill us. Uh-huh. He was a bit of a dangerous man. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. And this all happened around Mike Bloomfield sure. and everything. I know we're talking about some That's all right. inside stuff and everything. But Bloomfield, like you had you had recorded with Bloomfield yes. by that point, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I knew Mike, and Levon and I went uh to chicago to visit with mike and he was going to take us around to all the joints and yeah so and we went and we heard muddy play and we heard otis rush what's it, early 60s this was probably 64 so you guys are something are, like, are not the band yet no we're the hawks the hawks from ronnie yeah. and the hawks yeah. yeah so this is your first time in chicago it's our first time um hanging out in chicago right on on in the blues world, right, right, right. So anyway, and what and, and is uh, Butterfield playing with? Uh, who's it, he, he had his his own group and, and already, yeah. And and uh, and Bloomfield was playing with him, right? And, and first couple albums, yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, and he and he was so good, yeah. And he, but he was a, kind of a strange, mean spirited guy back then, <laughs> yeah. and 
and and we went over to his place for him to play us some old blues records. Right. And he took out two bags of grass. Bloomfield talked to him bringing out grass. So he, he gave us a bag of grass, and he rolled up a joint from another bag of grass. And I said, well, well you know, what's the difference? Yeah. And he said, well, that stuff I gave you is shit, <laughs> and this is the good stuff. And I said, oh, really? Yeah. That's, a, that's how you do it, huh? Yeah? yeah. yeah. And he said, yeah. And, and, and he was like, I, I don't give a fuck whether you smoke it or yeah. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. I can feel a chill in the air yeah. here. Yeah. So Levon and I went back to visit him the next day, and he wasn't there, and we went in and stole his good grass. <laughs> Get, we get the landlady to to let us in, and uh-huh. so anyway, we got we 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 got out of that without him killing us. Which, yeah, and so then we thought we could invite him to the last waltz. <laughs> so it was still unresolved at that point. <laughs> no, it was yeah. resolved oh, by good. then. <laughs> but anyway, all these people, and then the British blues to have Eric Clapton representing that, and country music, Amy Lou Harris, and gospel, the Staple Singers, yeah. and Tin Pan Alley, Neil Diamond, and so every, and Van Morrison to represent Van Morrison <laughs> to <laughs> represent own. this soul singer yeah this irish soul singer yeah and one of the best singers ever yeah right and he was somebody that we knew he was a wonderful and strange guy yeah you know? yeah and and when we were first starting to put the whole thing together we had thought well we would invite ronnie hawkins who we started out with and bob dylan right two real important people in our story in our background sure and then somebody said, well, if you're going to invite them, you got to invite Eric Clapton. Right. And we were like, that's right. we got to invite Yeah. Eric was the one waving the flag for the band very In Britain. early. Britain, yeah. Very early on. He, and, wa- he wanted to quit playing because of you guys almost. Yeah, he, that's what he said, that he, he quit Cream you yeah. know, because of after he heard music from Big Pink. What do you think it was about Big Pink that made him like? Have you talked to him about it, or do you have you thought about that? What do you think? Because like when you listen to Clapton, what he did after Cream was it he after that sort of amalgamation of 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 American music styles that you guys represent. What do you think it was in that record that made Eric Clapton go like, "Now, oh, fuck, it's over." Yeah, I go into detail on this in 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 my book. But I think it was kind of like what we were talking about before. When we made music from Big Pink, we'd yeah. already been together for like six or seven years. Yeah. So we knew what to leave out. Right. And the subtleties were as important. And and in the group that he was playing with, it was kind of bashing you over the head yeah. music. Big riffs. Like right between the eyes yeah. all the time. Yeah. And in and when musicians heard music from Big Pink, they thought, Oh my God, listen, this has a depth to it. This yeah. has space. It yeah. has air in it. Right. It's really about this soul coming to the surface. So it struck people in a different kind of way. In all different forms, the soul. You know, because yeah. you're you know, it's informed by country, by soul, by folk, by, you know, the blues. I mean, it all seems to creep in somehow. Yeah, because Unintentionally, I imagine. No, from all those years that we'd been out there playing and playing the Chitlin Circuit yeah. down south and playing everywhere, we were picking up all these musicalities by the side of the road. Primarily with Ronnie? With Ronnie, and then after we left Ronnie and, and before we joined up with Bob Dylan. But 
all of these musicalities were starting to come into our fold. Right. And when we were making Big Pink, it was like taking all of these pieces of music, yeah. putting them in a big bowl of gumbo and yeah. mixing it up. Right. Because when that record came out, which really shocked me at the time, people said, where the hell did this come from? Right. What is this? Right. And I'm like, what do you mean, what is this? This is what happens when you when you woodshed and you gather yeah. and you want to do something that is not trendy. It, you right. Know. But was it like in your mind, like during the time of recording Big Pink, were you guys sitting there saying that or was it happening organically? Organically. So like a lot of that you retro. No, but nobody ever talked like that. No, I wouldn't think no. so. No. <laughs> you just no. found a groove or whatever you were doing. Yeah. And you, you worked it out. And I think that's interesting that you know, as you evolved into your own band, that because you were so accustomed to playing behind other people, that you had an intuition with each other. Because you were try you your communication with the members of the band, you know, had to be very attuned because you didn't know what the front guy was gonna do necessarily or how what was gonna happen. Is that true? One of the things that was so such a, a feeling of achievement from the last Walls concert. Yeah was we played with everybody from Joni Mitchell to Muddy Waters. We played 21 songs yeah. that we hardly had an opportunity to run over with anybody. <laughs> right. We had no cheat sheets. Right. Nobody read music. Garth right. read music, but yeah. none of the rest of us could even read music if we had cheat sheets. Yeah. So to remember all of those songs by all of these different people and nobody screwed up. It was an achievement. We thought <laughs> Guinness Book of Records right here tonight. <laughs> and also that moment where, you know, I watched the uh I watched a Tom Petty documentary recently. And when they went on the road with Dylan, they, you know, they were such a sort of like a, a very kind of anal outfit in terms of, you know, playing. And they said something about Dylan that like, you know, there were times when you're backing Dylan where you don't know what he's gonna go into. You know, he likes to mix it up a little bit. Now, there seemed to be a moment in the last waltz when he moved from the first song to the second song, where I think he said D7 or something, that he, he did he impulsively decide the next song at that moment? We felt that we had a musical relationship that we were fearless on what he might want right. to go next. We had been down the path with Bob before. So... <laughs> We were we were game. Sure. And and we had an idea yeah. of what we were gonna play, but we knew it was still up in the air. Right. And and what the arrangement was right. and everything. You just had to follow him. Yeah. Yeah. But with him You knew the songs. We felt com a comfort sure. thing with him and with Ronnie Hawkins. Right. The bookends in the thing. We felt like we can handle this with everybody else. And especially with somebody like Joni Mitchell. Right. Which, you know, she has different tunings. It's not like you can look at her hands and figure out what chord she's playing. <laughs> yeah. You really had to be on your toes. Right. And she was exquisite. Was so much fun to play with. Do you keep in touch with anybody? Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, that's good. I like hearing that. Like well, Bob and Joni and people like that? Yeah, I went and visited with Joni not too long ago. Joni had a very unfortunate uh, health issue. Yeah. And so I wanted to go and give her some love and yeah. pay some respect. And, yeah. Yeah, and I had dinner uh, 
with Neil just a while back, and everybody. They're they're great. All, they're all just fantastic people. Besides being really talented. Yeah. So, like, do you still play a lot? I play all the time. I'm in the middle of a new record, and what's the feel? What's the tone? I'm I'm in a discovery process. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing something that I haven't done before, so I'm I'm. I'm on a mission yeah. to understand it. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's just it's, it's so, revealing itself as you engage. I like that too. Sure. I, li- I like not knowing the ending. So when let's let's go back to the to the roots of it then, you, because you're Canadian, which is uh, interesting. It's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> you thinking about that every day? Well, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I, I envy that you know but uh but how does it start for you i mean what what was your you know where were you born exactly i was born in toronto but i grew up between toronto and the six nation indian reserve that's where my mom was born and raised now an indian reserve in a, in the canadian sense i i know that it is not uh, a very good situation in this country. What was the situation there? It wasn't too hot there either. Yeah. But when I was really young, I didn't understand that. And we would go, my mother and I, we would go and visit a lot with the relatives in Six Nations. And, and what tribe? Um, uh, she was from the Mohawk Nation. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought they had it made. Yeah, because I was an only child, right? And when we stayed at the house, it's on Six Nations. On it's on Second Line there. Yeah, in this house, my uncle and aunt had twelve kids. Yeah, and they were all in this house. Yeah, and we were guests staying right. over, and I thought this is fantastic. Sure. Wow, <laughs> you know everybody's around and it's all happening. Yeah, and then. It seemed to me that everybody played music or sang or danced. Yeah. And I thought, this is incredible because I could hear music, somebody sitting right in front of me playing music. What was the music? Sometimes it was traditional music. Really? And they'd be playing like Iroquois water drums Uh or somebody would have a violin with a string missing. Right. Or a homemade mandolin. Right. Or a guitar. But it was a pastime. It was their entertainment. Hmm. There wasn't any big road shows coming through town at Six Nations. Yeah. So they had to provide their own entertainment. Right. And everybody did something. And I thought... I want to be a part of this. Yeah. And so as a young kid, they started showing me a couple of little chords on the guitar. And over a period of time, I got really drawn to this. And at one point when I was probably 12 years old, I thought, I'm getting as good as they are. Yeah. This is going I'm somewhere. ready. I'm ready. Yeah. So in all of that, all of this starting on the Indian Reserve yeah. of... Of a way of life, too. Yeah. Their connection, what my cousins could do that nobody in the city could do physically, what they could smell in the air, what they could tell. They could tell it was going to rain at three o'clock, you know. They were connected. They were connected and and magnificently uh, connected. Like I've, I've remarked before that they didn't climb up a tree, they ran up a tree. Right. And I thought, whoa. 
this is what I want to be a part of. I want what they got. And when I went back to the city, it was to me, it was like nobody here can do what they're doing. No, it's a whole different time, sense of time, right? It is that. It was like in a bit of a time warp, right. as a matter of fact. Because I read a, a book called On the Res by Ian Frazier that kind of changed. Sure. That like there was just little elements of this idea that like the you know if they needed to get up early they drink water before they went to bed so they'd have to piss and they get up early if they need to get up early but like entire days were 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 dedicated to you know at least two or three people even if it's just going to get a part for a car the sense of pace and timing and community was so you know connected connected to 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 the task at hand and to the planet in a way yep. So who, yeah. who, who, where's your dad play into all this? My dad, well, there's, you know, is in my, it's, it's, it's a big part of the storytelling in my book. Yeah. But my blood father got killed before I was born in a car. What'd you know about him? I didn't know anything about him because I grew up with who I thought was my father. Yeah. Robertson. Yeah. And I didn't know until I was 12 or 13 years old that, in fact, he wasn't my real father. Yeah. And that... How'd you find out? Your mom told you? My mother and him uh, split up. Yeah. Then he became quite abusive. And um, my mother got to a place where she just didn't want to take it anymore. Yeah. And so she said... Was he a drinker? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of drinkers, yeah, you know, yeah, and uh, you know, it was like a period of time too. It seemed like a lot of hardworking people were hard drinking people yeah. too. I think that's still something that happens. Yeah, it can yeah. happen. Sure. So anyway, when I was thirteen years old, uh, my mother says that she's leaving him. That we're leaving him. Right. There was no like. Uh, Do you want to stay? <laughs> yeah, it was no, there was no discussion. And you're the there. only child. Yeah. Uh huh. And so one day she says, uh, "I know I should have probably told you this before, but yeah. he's not your real father." Uh huh. And I, and I was, I, I I didn't even know. I couldn't imagine because he thought he was my real father. Oh, he didn't really. He didn't know. He didn't know. And I didn't know. So she grabbed him right right in the... Yeah, yeah. Because he'd been asking her to marry him. And when my blood father got killed, she she, you know, she was so, you know, yeah. you know to blown away by everything right. Right. that she agreed yeah. to then marry him. So then she says, he's not your real father. Yeah. I'm like, what? Who is? How does this happen? What do you mean? And yeah. all of that. And she says, I'll tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. And she had this Indian thing where you don't want to reveal too much too quick. Right. You know? Yeah. So of so she said to me after that, I have called relatives, the brothers of your real father, to introduce you to them. When was that? This was when I was 13 years old. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. And what did you find out about him? I found out that the, these two brothers came to, to meet with me. One was younger than my real father, and one was older. And my mother knew the older one. And th they met with me, and they were like, in two seconds, they were like, 
this is our brother's kid. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and 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 they were really, really warm yeah. and pulled me right in. Yeah. And my uncle, the younger one, my uncle Nady, he was a very traditional Jewish man. He was in the fur business and diamond business. Uh-huh. And he wanted me to be in the fur business and diamond business. Oh, they were business. ready to take you in, huh? Oh, they took me right in. Yeah. Took me right in. And him, and he was married to this beautiful woman, and they had a little boy and a little girl. And he went on over the next period of time and really embraced me, really pulled me in, because my father was his hero in life. So it was a connection Did for you him. live with him? I didn't live with them, but I saw them all the time. Oh, they're a big part of your life. And then he went on over the next few years to pull off the biggest swindle in Canadian history. <laughs> Which was what? It was Ponzi before there was Ponzi. Uh-huh. Before Mr. Ponzi came along. Yeah. He pulled off this incredible swindle. Yeah. And then my connection to the underworld uh-huh. became huge. Yeah? And yeah. And it was, How old were you? I, it was from it, starting when I was 13, and it went on up until I was 20. Your connection to the Canadian underworld. Canadian and New York. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So what was the swindle exactly? The swindle, it was a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. So he got a bunch of people's money. Yeah, he got a bunch of people's money. Said he was going to do something with it, and he didn't. He he his intentions were to do something with it, uh-huh. and he had something figured out. Right, but it wasn't happening as fast as what it, it needed to happen. Uh-huh. And people got very restless. Yeah, and so he had to resort to bringing in these heads of the the mob. Yeah, to protect him. And to hold everybody off in the meantime until, because his idea was, I'm going to take this money, I'm going to make a bunch of money, yeah. and everybody's going to do good sure. with this. Sure. And then the family, me and the Klegerman family, we're going to start a legitimate insurance business or finance company right? and be like the Bronfmans in Montreal that right. started Seagram's yeah. and started out as bootleggers. Yeah. So that was the big plan. Yeah. Did he end up in jail? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where's the uh, where's the music at this at this point? So I'm telling him and I'm telling my relatives I feel a strong connection to music. And they're like, "Yeah?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, like rock and roll music." They're like, "Rock and roll music? What is that?" It was like, you know, what is this crazy idea that you're talking about? So what, about? this is the late 50s? And they were like, oh, wait a minute. You mean show business? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, sure. Oh, I see. I understand show okay. business. Yeah. But it isn't like that crazy rock and roll people, is it? You yeah. know? Yeah. You know, <clears throat> it was a funny thing. And well, yeah, they understood show business. Yeah. But the new music was the, the crazy kids. Yeah, crazy kids. It hadn't become show business yet. Yeah. It was, right. You know, there was are, it late 50s you're talking here? This is early 60s. Okay. Up to the mid 60s. So then he goes... He and the head of the Toronto 
uh, mafia yeah. end up going to prison at the same time together, which they think is actually a good idea. Yeah. Because everything can settle down. They can get the money to figure it out. Right. All this kind of... And they get when they get out of prison, I'm now playing with Bob Dylan. <laughs> Right, so they come and see see us playing yeah. at a big arena, right. and everything, and thousands of people, and all this. And now they're like, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! How do we get in on this? How do we become a part of this?" this <laughs> Maybe looks, the kid needs help. This looks like good show business. Yeah, yeah, here. yeah. And did they? No, uh, <laughs> it was those too are, late. Those, that ship yeah, had sailed. That's right. But uh, wh- how do you get? Let's put uh, you know Ronnie Hawkins into perspective because I don't think a lot of people, myself included, before I saw the last waltz, really knew who he was. How did uh, so you're getting proficient at guitar, you know, over your teen years, right? How do you get your first gig? What's the first band? I I'm in a bunch of bands, yeah. in the around the Toronto area, and one of the groups that I'm in, we open for Ronnie Hawkins at the in the Hawks at um, uh, like a a Sunday dance, yeah. Because they they play clubs during. Where's the week. he from, Ronnie Hawkins? Arkansas. Okay, they were all from Arkansas. So it's a big tour. He's on the road. He's on the road, and and they play clubs, and they play some one nighters like this dance. Did he have any hits? Oh yeah, no, he was a big rockabilly guy. So, so was it regional or national hits? National. Yeah. No, no, he he was doing really really well i feel bad i don't know more yeah no but it was at that time yeah this is like 1959 yeah uh, a the original rockabilly guys yeah what are the hits um i think his biggest hit was mary lou oh yeah and another one called 40 days yeah and another one called southern love and um so anyway but he was an incredible performer Uh uh-huh and had a crackerjack group. Yeah. The Hawks were amazing. And it was mind-blowing to me. And so when we played on this same gig with them... What was your outfit called? The Swades. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Matching outfits? Um, so, and some of the groups. In the group Robbie and the Robots, we had matching outfits. <laughs> so... This was a door opening. Yeah. Seeing Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. And they're all from the South. Yeah. They're all the authentic, real thing. Yeah. And this is in Canada. Yeah. Right. So I want to hang around and have some of this rub off on me. Yeah. And and learn what I could learn. And so I managed to be able to be friends with them and hang around. And one day, Ronnie Hawkins. I heard him say, I got to go in the studio and make a new uh, album, and I got to find some songs. So I went off and I wrote two songs. I came, played them for him, and he said, well, I'll be damned. I'm going to record both of those songs. And I I was 15. I thought, okay. Fifteen. We're getting somewhere. That's amazing. When I was a year and. And he said, I got my eye on you, kid. Something going on here. Yeah. When I was 16, he asked me to come from Toronto down to Arkansas. And he wanted to try me out and see if I had what he called the right potential to become a hawk. On guitar? 
on on guitar. Yeah. But first, the bass player was leaving. Right. The bass player was going off to become a preacher down yeah. south. Sure. And he said to me, lefty More heaven. money in it, I guess. That's what he said. <laughs> so down here, preacher can do pretty damn good, you know? <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is the real thing. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? You yeah. Know? So I tried out, and I was too young. I was 16 years old. He just left Canada, and your mom was like, see you later? No, or? my mom was like, this is this is wrong right you're not doing this right and, and forget about it and uh, the uncles the, the jewish family Every, they were, everybody was like you're out of your mind but you did it you dropped and out of high school i did and i said i convinced them and i sold it pretty well yeah i said <laughs> if i don't do this if i don't try this yeah i could be sorry for the rest of my life oh and that's and something I, anyone can identify with and i said if I go down there and yeah. it doesn't work out, I'm coming right back and I'll go right back to school. Oh, okay. And Made they, a deal. They said, okay, you can try it. Yeah. And they didn't believe, they thought I would be coming right back and going back to school. Uh-huh. Because I was 16. You yeah. needed to be 20. Sure. They thought, get, let him get it out of his system. You needed to be 21 to play any of the places. Yeah. I was unexperienced. And the big thing was, in a rockabilly band, they don't have any Canadians. Yeah, right. you know, it just doesn't exist. <laughs> Canadians barely exist. They were, they were all from the South, yeah. right? Yeah. But these guys were leaving, and Ronnie Hawkins and Levon, who was very, very important to Ronnie as far as he had a great ear and yeah. a great sense of music and musicianship and everything. So Levon was in the original Hawks. He was. He yeah. he was there since the beginning. Yeah. And Levon took me under his wing and helped me. And I eventually, I, Ronnie Hawkins hired me when I was 16 years old. To play bass? To play bass. And then the guitar player was leaving. And then I took over on guitar. So you were it. You were playing rockabilly music. That's fast pro shit. Pro professional on the road. The Chitlin circuit down south. 16 years old. How many gigs you working? We played usually seven nights a week. For years? For years. And the more the better. Yeah? Yeah. You just kept getting tighter and tighter? We kept getting better and learning more and taking more in and having life experiences that one day I had to write a book about. Sure. And now we got the book. But what was, was is Levon older than you? Was he older yeah. than you? Yeah, he was a few years older than me. And where does Rick come in? When does that happen? When do you guys detach? So after these guys from the South and from Arkansas, one by one, they wanna they wanna stay home. They don't yeah. wanna be on the road anymore. Yeah. They got families, whatever. One by one, they're leaving. And so then Levon and I noticed this guy on a and on everybody just about happens the same way as I did, that they were in a little opening band right. you know, that played for us. Yeah. We saw Rick Danko playing with his own little group. Where? In Canada. He's a Canadian too. So Ronnie liked playing up in Canada because they paid more money and you worked less hours. And you were special too. Yeah. I mean, like it, yeah. you, they don't have that in Canada. Right. Yeah. So we see Rick... And we think, this guy, there, there's something about this guy, something about him musically. And he can sing, wow. Yeah. And it, so anyway, between Ronnie, Levon, and I, 
we pull Rick into the fold. He right. becomes part of it. Then we play another group, and we see Richard Manuel. In Canada? In Canada. Everybody's in Canada yeah. now. We see Richard Manuel, and the piano player's leaving. And Richard's a great piano player, but he can also, he's 17 years old, and he sings like Bobby Blue Bland, yeah, right? We're right, like, right. wow, yeah, yeah, where yeah. do you get one of those in right. Canada, right? Yeah. So we pull Richard into the fold. Yeah. Then we hear this musician like we've never heard anybody like this in our life, <laughs> yeah. Garth Hudson. Yeah. Where was could, that? In Canada. <laughs> What was in he London, doing? Ontario, he was playing. He was playing um, in his uncle's funeral home. <laughs> How did and, you find him? And because he also played in a, in a little local group too. Oh, okay. And he came and heard us. And one day he came and sat in with us. And this guy could have been playing with Miles Davis or the symphony orchestra. Right. He was that accomplished. We'd never, and at the same time, there was something incredibly imaginative and funky about his playing as well. Yeah. So we were like, oh my God, if we only had somebody like that, it could make us all so much better. Yeah. And he was like an unusual, cool guy. And it was hard to get him, because we asked him to join us and he said no. Yeah. And we're like, what, what, you know? Was he like, he already got a keyboard player? No, because we were talking about having a piano and an organ player. Right. Like a gospel group. Right. No bands had that. Right. Right. And it could give us a big sound, having an organ in the group. Sure. Ronnie was into this, but we couldn't, Levon and I said, let us talk to Garth. So we went and told... uh, uh, we told Garth about our lifestyle, yeah, and that this was probably something he'd want to get in on, <laughs> and everything. And he still said no. Yeah, and we were like, "What is going on with this guy?" Right. And finally, we found out that his parents had dedicated so much to his musical education. Right. That if he joined a rock and roll band... They'd be it, furious. They'd be like yeah. throwing it down the drain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So Ronnie Hawkins took a shot at the parents and said that this is... that. Garth would not only be, this would be great for his career right. and his musicality, yeah. but he would also be the musical teacher in the group. Oh. And he said, oh, yeah. and that's a very prestigious position. <laughs> and they fell for it. <laughs> they, they did. And huh? we got Garth. And then that was it. Once we had this combination of people, that was what we were looking for. And even for and for that band, that was like a big, uh, a very experimental approach. Yes, it was. There was an intellectual element to it that you were already aware that you were bringing in elements that were going to make mm-hmm. Ronnie Hawkins his uh, his sound bigger and 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 different, and he was willing to do it. Oh, he loved the idea of having the hottest group around. Sure. The problem was, yeah, that we were all younger. We were younger, and we were growing. Yeah, and we were growing quickly now. Yeah, and we outgrew Ronnie Hawkins, and we musically went to another place, and we realized that we had to move on. How did that go down? It didn't go down very well in the beginning, as these things usually don't. Right. You know? But eventually, 
we, we, it got all patched up and we loved Ronnie and he was the guy that helped put us together and, and we owed a tremendous debt and a lot of love to him. So we ended up being, you know, friends forever. But it's interesting, a guy like Ronnie Hawkins, I mean, outside of like, you know, what you guys were doing, it seems that, you know, given that he was sort of not necessarily stuck, but committed to the music that he does, he could put another outfit together. <clears throat> Yes, and that's what he did. Right. And you guys went on as what? Levon and the Hawks. Oh, he didn't mind you saying the Hawks, though, Ronnie. Well, but we were the Hawks. Right. And and we were using that because whatever little support system we had built up over the time, because we were still playing the Chitlin Circuit down yeah. south and these clubs up north and in New York and wherever we played, we had a following as the Hawks. So we were just using that in the meantime. And you were drawing. And we were getting people, you know, coming to the clubs, and we were good. Yeah, and this was what this was the early '60s still. This is '64, '65. So when you like go to New York and stuff, were you aware of the scene that was going on there? Were you like the folk scene or whatever was happening? I mean, did you feel the other music around, like in, that was being processed through New York primarily? I mean, you're down in the real world with the real people in the Chitlin circuit in the South, and you're taking all that in, but New York was a place where people came to sort of uh, exploit that to a degree and, and create, I, I guess at that time, the folk scene, right? That was, that was part of it. It was yeah. still like the end of, in the 60s, it was still the end of the, the Tin Pan Alley, the Brill Building people, you know, songwriters and people sure. making pop. Lieber and Stoller, yeah. Carol King, Goffin, yeah. and those oh, guys. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. And then in its own kind of underworld in New York and in Toronto, too, um, there was this folk music right. up uprising happening. Right. We were from the other side of the tracks. Right. We were playing R&B and rock and roll. And on the other, the joints that we were playing in, were really rough clubs, right. bars, right? Right. And the folk scene, they were playing in coffee houses. <laughs> yeah. There was nobody sipping cappuccinos where we played, right? <laughs> yeah. And and so we thought, wow, this is for college kids over there or yeah. something on the other side of the tracks. <laughs> right. You know, we don't go over there, but sometimes they come over here. Yeah. Right? And so it was just another thing. And it was, there was a bit of an irony than to actually hooking up with somebody like Bob Dylan. Right. Who was like the king of the folk music world. Well, you were part of this whole transition, really. Yeah. You? Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So how? So how's that? So you're playing with the Hawks, and, and how does... Who was it? Albert Grossman that wrote you in? It was Albert Grossman, and, and we had a, a bit of a reputation out there. Which is what? which is being a hot band mm -hmm. that, that we really could play. Cooks. and Yeah. And, and, and so people knew that. Yeah. And, the, and the word was out. Yeah. So amongst the Albert Grossman and the people at his agency and Bob Dylan and everything, the word was on the street, right, about these guys. And in the beginning, I met with... I, I got a message to come and meet with Bob Dylan, and I'd met him in passing with John Hammond Jr. Yeah, 
John Hammond Jr. took me to the recording studio to see a friend of his who was recording that day. We go in the studio, and this guy, Bob Dylan, that I don't know very much about, has just recorded a song called Like a Rolling Stone. What was that, 64 or something? 65. It's 65, I yeah. think. And his you know? dad, John Hammond Sr., was the producer, correct? Or the, was the guy who discovered. Yeah, the A&R guy, the head of, uh, where was he at? Columbia. Columbia. Yeah, yeah. Assigned him to Columbia. And I always so, wondered about John Hammond Jr. because I'm a big fan of his, and I and I like oh. his way of playing the blues. I and I always have. Was at that time? Did, was there a sense that he's like, well, he's the boss's kid kind of thing? No, no, that it was. I don't think John Hammond Jr. and Senior got along that well because the his John said his parents had split up, right? And he was on his mom's side, right? Right? And, yeah, and so. And him going off to become a white blues singer. Yeah, I don't think that the father right. thought that's you know that's you know something in this family we shouldn't do. But it's interesting because he recorded all those singers and yeah. he found these like he's even part of the Springsteen story. And I think Billie Holiday and like he's right. like a, a very famous. See, he guy. thought it was fine for Billie Holiday to sing blues. Right, he didn't think it was okay for his son. <laughs> I'm guessing at this. Right, sure, you know? I get you, I get you. you know? So you're up there with John Hammond, you see uh, you see Dylan in the so studio, I meet you met him. him. And I meet him in passing. Then, I don't know, a while later, he call. I get a message to come and meet with Bob. Yeah. And I have no idea what this is about. Right. I was curious, and yeah. I went and met with him, and he wanted to hire me to play guitar with, with him on some dates that he was going to do. Yeah. And so I said, I can't. I, yeah. I'm in a group. I, right. You know, we don't. Yeah, we we don't go package off. Package deal. And he said, Well, how do we make this work? And I said, Well, maybe because it was just really two dates he was talking about. I said, If if Levon can come too, he's like my partner. Yeah. If Levon can come too, maybe I could pull this off. Right. So they figured it out. Levon and I played these two d- dates with him, and they were like. A nightmare, a musical nightmare. <laughs> Why? We played at Forest Hill Stadium in New York and yeah. the Hollywood Bowl in L.A. And we didn't know what this routine was. Yeah. That people hated him going electric. Right, like, right. Using we'd old... only ever been electric. We we yeah. thought there was something funny about the idea of going electric. Right. But we got we understood the thing. But people threw stuff at us, booed us, and charged the stage. I mean, physically. Folkies charged the stage? Charged the stage. To do what? With anger and venom coming out of their mouths. It was like, oh, my God, they really hate this. So we play these two dates, and Bob says... That went pretty well. How would you like to do a whole tour? So we were like, wow, this guy, this guy, he's bold. I got to say he's bold. Were you a fan? I didn't know that much about his music yet. I'd heard a couple of things. Right. I heard a song somewhere at one point song that he did called Oxford Town. Oxford Town, and Oxford I, Town. Yeah. yeah. And I love the sound of his voice yeah. on it and that he was saying something. Yeah. The song was about something. Right. Whoa. And so that caught my attention, 
but it was like I wasn't following folk music. Right. <laughs> I was following, you know, what yeah. we were into, southern music. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, so after, you know, we, we, we did these dates and he said, let's do this tour. That's when we said, no, 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 we're a group. Right. And we're with this group. Right. So that ain't going to happen unless the whole group does it. Right. And we've got to even see whether they want to. Right. Because this is weird. And, and at that time, he's not like a known quantity in the world you're in necessarily. He's a star, but you still didn't necessarily know exactly how you fit into it. Yeah. Right. He was playing Carnegie Hall. Right. By himself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it was like, I don't know. We're, yeah, we're playing yeah, a club. We're, we're <laughs> on the other side of the tracks yeah, still, yeah, yeah. right? So these worlds, so finally he comes and hears us play and says, let's do this together. And we think, this is so weird. Let's check it out. Let's see what happens. But when you were when you were at the studio and he was going down like a Rolling Stone or whatever, was Bloomfield there and then and Al yep. Cooper and everybody was there? Yep. So you saw them like that music made sense to you. I thought this is interesting. There's something going right, on right, here. Right, right, right. You know, um, I thought it's a little disorganized. Yeah. But it's fresh. Yeah, yeah, And I've yeah. never heard anything quite like this before. Right. And boy, does he have a bunch of words. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> but that band, because like that band on that album, on that song, you know, that that's definitely, you know, where you guys were going or, or part of it, right? Well, that was where the combination of musicians that he was putting together, yeah. that's where they were going. Right. And so that opened a door to right. this. Yeah. And so for us being able to play music electrically, and so he was doing, we would do some of the songs that he had done acoustically before. Yeah. Some of the songs that were his new songs now sure. that he did with musicians in the studio. Yeah. So it was really a discovery process. So you said yes to the gig. We said, let's check this out. It's, right. You know, I was fascinated by him as a writer, as what was happening in the world musically, yeah. and as a person. Yeah. I really liked him, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we had a great time together. Yeah. So I was saying, let's check this out, guys. Yeah, yeah. And so we hooked it up. And we went and played, and people booed and threw stuff at us every night where we went. You know what it reminded How me of? How many dates? Oh, well, we toured all over the United States yeah. and Canada. Getting booed. All over Lost, uh, Australia and all over Europe. And that the famous Royal Albert Hall was you guys? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and And every night, everywhere, this happened, and I thought, what a strange way to make a buck, you know. <laughs> what were the other guys saying? They were saying this is this is really crazy. And at some point, could you feel the fucking hate in the room when you? you oh yeah. And you guys were playing. You had to enjoy. You, you had to do the job. But you knew they were just sitting there with sour faces. Fuck these guys. Oh my god! No, no. You in some cases it was so violent. The backlash was so violent, and you had to think, as anybody would, this is not going over very well with the audience. <laughs> Maybe we should make some adjustments, right? <laughs> right. And, and the adjustment was from the Bob Dylan camp. Yeah. 
you should get rid of these guys. They're ruining everything. They love you, but they hate these guys. Yeah. So we were like, whoa, look at the position this has put us in. Right. This is awkward. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is really, really strange. So you didn't know whether you wanted to be there for sure and all this was going on. But the bottom line was we were getting better and better at this. Yeah. And finally, there was a moment I remember after we played a concert and we were back in the hotel and we had a tape recorder and the sound man was playing us the concert, yeah. what we had just done. Right. And when I was listening to that, I said to the other guys and I said to Bob, they're wrong. This is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're wrong. The world is wrong. And we gotta win this battle. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and 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 after and we went out and played against this hatred and all of this thing, knowing this is a musical revolution. Right. And this is the kind of shit that changes the rules in the yeah. whole world. Yeah. And it's us against the world here. Right. And we got to prove our point. And we ended up, we, we, we weren't winning the battle, but we won the war. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Bob was on board. Bob didn't blink. Yeah. It was incredible. And he the, the structure of the show was half acoustic, and then you guys would come out, knowing, sitting back there, yeah. you, you know he's closing with Masters of War, whatever the fuck it is. It's all right, Mar, whatever the big right. closer is. And you're like, Ugh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. And you know what? It even reminded me, at one point, I had this weird dream yeah. that it was like, do you remember years ago with wrestlers like Gorgeous George mm -hmm. and all of these wrestlers, and there would be the good guy. Yeah, and the you were the heel? And the bad yeah, guy yeah, yeah. who would come up like with a black mask yeah, on. Yeah. He'd come out and everybody would boo him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew what he was going out there for. <laughs> I felt like a wrestler you know, going into battle. And when did it, like, because when did the, the music, it seems like what happened was the music business and the sounds eventually shifted in your direction, right? I mean, like you say, you you lost the battle, but you won the war. Did it level off to where people were happy to see you? Well, after, and it was funny, after we did this whole tour and we finished, like you said, with the famous Albert Hall show and, and all the musicians, all the bands, England, they were all there in the audience in the different boxes and yeah, everything. Yeah. It was embarrassing playing in front of everybody. And the audience just booing you after every song. And it was just getting worse and worse. So after the tour, we come back to the United States. And again, Bob says, well, we're thinking about putting together another tour. What do you think? <laughs> We're like, wow, this guy, I'm telling you, you know, this guy, he's either really right or really wrong. <laughs> you know? So we were talking about that, but that's when he had his motorcycle accident. Oh. And so we couldn't go in, in tour anymore. Really? So that, so, you know, he was going to be, he was going to keep fighting it. Yeah. And then he got hurt. And then you guys, that's where Big Pink happens. That's right. So he's got to lay back for health reasons. Yeah. And then you guys really start to gel. 
together with Bob, but also with what the sound was evolving into. Well, the idea was that playing with Bob was a temporary passing thing, right? Yeah, it was like Ronnie. Yeah. Yeah. We were now, now we were going to go and do our thing. Right. We went off into the twilight zone with him for a while. Yeah. And it was an incredible life-changing experience talk about build thick skin yeah you know but now it was time for us to do our thing yeah what we were our calling right and that's what you know big pink was and, was all about and was albert grossman your manager albert grossman it was interesting because after the tour albert grossman said i think that i could maybe get you guys uh, a record deal of doing Bob Dylan instrumentals. Yeah. <laughs> that was his pitch? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we were so it was like, wow, he doesn't even know who we are or what we really do. Yeah. But why would he and how could he? Yeah. So when we made music from Big Pink, yeah. He was as shocked as anybody was. Uh-huh. So was Bob Dylan. You know, did he see, like it? Oh, yeah. 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 It was all like, look at this. And that was after the Basement Tapes, Big Pink? Yeah. Yeah. And then you were your own guys, and then you you decided on the name? Yeah. <laughs> the band? Yeah. We'd been together. We'd been together for too many years to start think of, thinking of a silly name. <laughs> yeah. You know? And yeah. They, 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 you know, Richard Manuel talks about that in The Last Waltz. Oh, yeah, know? yeah, right. Yeah, the crackers. And, and yeah, the, yeah, so yeah, what yeah. are we going to call the strawberry overcoats <laughs> or whatever? It was too silly. Yeah, yeah. You and know? it was that time. And at the time, too, playing with Bob, everybody referred to us as the band. Sure. For It was going on two years. We were so used to that. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't get off that track. And it was the closest thing we could think of to not following a trendy, silly yeah. thing right. at all. Yeah. Just, this is straightforward. This is about the music. Yeah. And you guys at that point, after Big Pink, were getting along? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, we always got along. Oh, you did? Good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was some crazy periods in there you know just because a lot of experimenting with drugs was going on yeah how did you guys avoid that because i know like you know when you talk about uh, you know bloomfield or butterfield and you know and i guess you, you couldn't like heroin was everywhere right yeah and people got fucked up yeah and some people survived and some people didn't exactly and that was just part of it it infiltrated just about every group we knew yeah and it inf infiltrated us and yeah. at one point i had three junkies in my band yeah and it was like hard to call rehearsal time <laughs> but like i always wonder about that like what what is the concern level because i guess it was it doesn't seem like it was ever you can never just sit there and go like I, this is just a party drug i mean that's a big commitment and you know and it's it's devastating i mean in in the unit were you you know concerned yeah scared and yeah. concerned and I was no angel myself. Right. I wasn't standing there with a ruler, sure, you know, sure. measuring oh, things. Of course. Um, and everybody was experimenting right. in all kinds of ways. Right. So you can't get on your high horse too much. Right. And I guess they never really realized, I, you know, I mean, you could look at the jazz age, but I guess that generation, you know, still assumed it was a party. And, 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 and when it got dark, it was probably a surprise. It was almost part of the ritual. Mm-hmm. 
at a point. Yeah. You know, like you got to walk through this door yeah. to know if it's real or not. Yeah. But you guys kind of, you journeyed on and then you made uh, the next record, the band, the record, the second record you did out here? Yeah, we did it in Sammy Davis Jr.'s pool house. We rented his house. Was he living there? No, 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 no. We <laughs> we, we insisted he move out while we were making the record. Did you meet him? Did you have a relationship no, with him? No, no, no. It was just a house that he had owned. Oh, okay. And and so we just got it through a rental agency. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a house that we could all live in and once again making our own atmosphere and turning the pool house which you could tell this pool house had such a vibe yeah. of Rat Pack vibe to it. Right, right. You know, the yeah. way the mirrors oh, yeah, yeah, were sure, everything sure. Yeah. in the place. It wasn't big pink. <clears throat> no. And so we had some work to do on that <laughs> yeah, yeah. to make it. But it was like making an atmosphere that had our own character to it. Mm -hmm. And the record had its own character to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And the sound and everything. So you weren't affected by L.A. necessarily. You still brought... You know, the unit was so tight, and once you got the decorations and the shit together, you guys were your own landscape. You were your own oh, yeah. country, in a way. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. locked in. Yeah, we made it our our own island. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a great time and a great experience, but we were inside our own underground. Right, exactly. And, and we made this music... And it had no connection to the outside world. Isn't that interesting? And I, were you guys going out at night? Were you seeing the doors? Were you seeing, you know, Hendrix or Joplin or any of those people? I went were and saw Hendrix uh, d during this period. Yeah, we went out sometimes, <laughs> but but we were working. Right. It wasn't, you know, it was, and we mostly recorded at night. Yeah. We would start in the afternoon. Yeah. Kind of get a plan on what we were going to do, have a bite to eat with the family and everything. Yeah. It was very family oriented, the, the, the whole vibe. And then after dinner, we would go down and we would start making music. And it's, it's astounding because like you, the, the outside, the, the, the trend of music of the time was not infiltrating. You no. guys were doing your own trajectory completely. Yeah. You know, you weren't trying to keep up with anybody. We didn't even know that we weren't connecting with anybody. We didn't understand that. Yeah. We were just trying to do something really good. Right. And it was in in the songs that I was writing, I wasn't trying, I didn't have a big idea. I was just, it was all I could think of at the time. Yeah. And, and I was trying to do something really good. Wow. And you did. You did amazing things. You did that that album, that second record, that had a couple of big ones on there. Yeah, it was part of another part of a musical revolution. Yeah. That had such big pink in the band album. Yeah. And other stuff that we did too. Ended up having a big effect on the course of music. Yeah. On the direction of music. Yeah. On songwriting. Yeah. On stuff you could do that nobody realized you could do before. And I have to say, the fact of being part of the revolution with Bob Dylan opened a lot of doors and showed a lot of things that you could do that nobody was allowed to do before, too. It didn't happen before. Right. Yeah. And, and so that just rubbed off on us, and we thought, that's what you do. Right. You, you break the rules. And right. You change things. It was time later on 
when we realized we were rebelling against the rebellion. <laughs> that other people thought, who were the rebels out there, that we were rebelling against them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we're just making... We think what you're doing is trendy. Right. We think what you're doing is obvious. Right. And we're just going to do this. We're just going to do something, whatever it is. Yeah. And whatever our calling is, we're going to follow that path. When you look back on those, like on those first two records, like which songs are you the most proud of? I mean, that's a hard question, I guess. Yeah. Different songs for different reasons. Yeah. I really liked a song that I wrote called Rag Mama Rag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd never heard that before. I right. never heard anything quite like that before. I was drawn to that feel. Yeah. And the combination of the funkiness and the mountain and the yeah. all of the stuff that was in that gumbo. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like the the dead sort of took off from you guys a little bit. Like you probably yeah. had a you probably laid it pretty. Like I bet you your 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 records kind of blew Garcia's mind. I'm imagining he t- he told us that he did. Yeah. Oh, okay, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, because t- Rag Mama Rag is like you, they could cover that song. Yeah, and they might have. I, they covered <laughs> other songs. Oh, they but did. I, but I lost track of, uh-huh. of of which ones they did. But yeah, uh, yeah they you know they've. You're like a secret key to that time in a way, the band that like you, you know, because you can see that influence in them, you know, in the dead, like on the record, certainly. And, you know, and certainly through a lot of other like, like even Tom Petty, even the the way that, you know, each person represents himself in a in a rock band is a lot when it's organic and you feel everyone's got this personality in their space. It seems to be something you guys kind of gave the world. That was part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a nice thing to be able to to share something that that you thought, oh, that inspired somebody. That's good, and I hear it today. Yeah, all over the place still. What what leads to the decision to 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 disband? Well, we had been together. Yeah, on the road. Yeah, for sixteen years. Right, and it seemed like we had done it all. We had been there and back, Mm -hmm. and we had played the roughest, meanest little honky-tonks known to mankind, Yeah, and we had played the biggest concerts in the world. So for that, it wasn't like there's a lot to be learned out here now. And also you did, like you did, you know, big, musically experimented with everything. You you know, like, you know, you did, you brought in horns, you brought in, you know, you you did everything. We'd been around the block. It right. felt like that. But also at the same time, there was a thing happening out there on the road. Mm. And with with the interference of drugs, of hard drugs, yeah. it was it, it it was becoming an unknown what was going to show up that night. It got dangerous. And and, and Richard Manuel was really struggling. And and the rest of us were struggling too because in a group like ours, which isn't a you know about a singer with no shirt on and right. a guitar player right. and some other guys, yeah, it was really about the five people in the band. Yeah, that's why it was a real band. Yeah, and so when there was one flat tire, you know what I mean, it it made everything. So 
<clears throat> it got to a place where I thought, we've got to go underground. We got to get out of the public eye and we got to help one another and fix this thing yeah. before somebody dies. Yeah. Because so many of our friends are dying and yeah. have died. Yeah. So we've got to do something. And then I thought of, what if we bring this to a beautiful musical conclusion and we have this celebration of, of what we love in this music and our friends mm -hmm. and all that? What if we do something so beautiful like that and then, and then we do our thing and go underground and rediscover what our calling is? Right. And to everybody, it seemed like that's the right thing to do. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing to do. And so the idea of putting together this celebration, yeah. which we end up calling the last waltz, um, it, it had to do with the times, that era. Yeah. It felt like the end of an era. Yeah. It felt like something needed to be brought to a conclusion in everything. Yeah. And and around the outskirts of what we were bringing to a conclusion, it felt like there was another, there was another uh, kind of, of revolution stirring of hip hop yeah. and punk. Yeah. There was, it was just, you know, a little, just a tiny bit of it seeping under the door at yeah. that time. So was it 76? Yeah, the end yeah. of 76. Yeah. So these things were coming in, and this thing had built to a crest, and there was nothing better than the feeling of getting together and everybody celebrating the music of the band and celebrating one another. And then I had the audacity to go and ask Martin Scorsese to direct the movie of it. Just because you were a fan of his? I was. I I loved the way that he used music in his movies. Yeah, I, I could tell there was something going on here. Yeah, yeah. But by audacity, I mean he was in the middle of directing a movie, and they do not like it when you're directing a movie when you sneak off and direct another movie. Which movie? <laughs> he was directing New York, New York. Sure. Yeah, the musical. Right. Yeah. And so. He was like, oh my God, I have to do this. I have to do this. <laughs> yeah. But how do I do this? And, yeah. You know, you can't do that. And they're going to be upset and blah, blah, all this stuff. But he was like, but I, I, I have no choice. I have to do this. Yeah. And he figured out another complete underground way of leading. And we decided to do this over the Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah. When everybody would be off doing something and. We could we, we could maybe sneak this in. Yeah. And his preparation for the concert is phenomenal. There is a collector's edition. I have it. The the, the shooting script. Oh it's crazy. My, isn't it crazy? It's crazy. And you see that the last Walls movie, you know, after forty years holds up the way it does because the man did his homework. Yeah, I think the he man is not messing around. He like with, invented how to shoot a concert. He wanted it to be a movie. Yeah. You know, and it's and, great. It was great to watch it again. Yeah, and he, you know, and he said, "I don't, I don't particularly like these concert film things with yeah. the shaky cameras and yeah. ugly lights and yeah. everything." 
we want to make it like a movie. Yeah. Inspired by Michael Powell and yeah. <laughs> all of these names that he was bringing out. And it was like, all right, now we're on the right track. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that began, uh, outside of creating that amazing film, you, you, that began your relationship with him, I guess. Yep. And it's an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing thing. We have such a fantastic time. You score some, and you help him select songs. Yeah, it's yeah. great. And every movie that he does is different. Yeah, it's a, it's a new challenge. You've been involved with like a dozen of them, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, he's a live wire. Oh yeah, he is. And he's still, he's just one of the great masters of movie making in uh -huh. history. You know? Uh huh. And so I just love what he does, and every time he pulls a rabbit out of the hat. And do you find songs that he's never heard and, then let, and vice versa? Oh, yeah. And that must be part of the fun. Oh, it's great fun. Yeah. Now, like, um, in, in looking back, and then you got your solo work. I remember your first solo album. It was a very big deal. I remember, because I remember the promo, the press on it was that you were going to draw from your indigenous roots mm -hmm. a bit. So the, the music was very different in a way than the band was. I remember getting the CD and just pondering it. This is what this is what Robbie's <laughs> up to, you know. Like this, this is the next thing, you know. Yeah. But it was a it was a popular record. Yeah. It did all right and it got a lot of beautiful critical acclaim. It was a pretty record. Yeah. And now, how many have you done? I don't. Um, how many have I done? Like solo. I don't know. Maybe eight or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. I'm in the middle of a new record right now. Yeah. It's going good. Good. It's going good, yeah. And when you think about, like, I know there were problems with Levon over this or that and with uh, with Rick. I mean, how did that stuff end up resolving itself? And then Richard died. I mean, like, these guys, you know, and Garth is still around, right? Yes, he is. And was there was there love lost? Um, Not for me. There was, I never had a problem with Levon. Yeah. Um, in all of the years that we played together, yeah. we never had a sour word. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. It was years after the band. And they had been touring as the band and holding yeah. on. Like, it seems that once the breakup happened, a lot of them could not, well, I mean, one or two of them could not escape, you know, the, the life in a way. Of, of what we had. Yeah. 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 Um, it was years after yeah. the last waltz when they decided they wanted to go out and they called me and said, yeah. you know, we've decided that we, we want to go out and make some music and, and we need to make a living. Yeah. And I was like, and they said, do you mind? You know, we're going to use the name the band. Yeah. I said, I would never stand in the way yeah. of you making a living and, and doing whatever you want. And I understand that calling. And I had decided not to join that because yeah. I still felt... I still felt this worry. I still felt this strain inside. And I was worried about Richard still. Yeah. And it came, unfortunately, you know, it, you know, Richard did end up dying. And, uh, but anyway, the thing, like years later, I heard that Levon said these things yeah. that, that, I, that I did this or I didn't do that. About songwriting or, credits? Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And it was, it, I, I never responded to it. It was so silly that I couldn't even respond to it. And I knew that Levon, he had this thing inside of him. And, it, and I knew it was in there, 
that he, it was always somebody's fault mm. for something if things weren't going too right. well. And but anyway, I loved Levon, and I yeah. thought he was an amazing talent. Yeah, the closest thing I ever had to a brother. Yeah, in all of that. So when he said these things, I just couldn't give it. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. In much responsibility. And Rick was, uh, Rick seemed like to be a sort of very special presence. Rick was fantastic. And I, and I, and I was friends with Rick, uh, you know, up to the very end. Yeah. And, I, and I was heartbroken when he died, too. Yeah. And I was heartbroken when Levon died. Yeah. And I got to see him before he passed away. I thought he was doing much better. I thought he was on the road to recovery. Were you guys okay at that point? Did you guys settle it? I was always okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need. Well, was he, he all you, right then? By the end, I don't. You, you know, don't know, I I went to see him. Yeah. I went to see him and held his hand. Yeah. You know, before he passed away, and it takes two people to be in a feud. Yeah. I wasn't in a feud. <laughs> right. You right. know, I yeah. thought he was terrific, but he had issues. Yeah, yeah. He had health issues, and he had some. Head issues too that stirred up on him, but I just never, I couldn't bring it. I, I yeah. just couldn't make myself get, you know, be, yeah. be upset about How's it. How's Garth doing? And Garth is amazing. Yeah, he is such an incredible talent. He lives on a different planet than yeah. everybody else. <laughs> yeah, but he is su- such an amazing. And like I say in this book, you yeah. know. That with Garth, God only made one of those. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's extraordinary. And I'm, and I've got a couple of songs, new songs that I've written, that I'd, I, I would love to have Garth uh, when I record them play on them with me. Yeah, because there's something in there. Because I always knew great ways to show uh, to show Garth off. Oh, good to good. the world. Oh, you good, know? and. I guess like the last question is like you know you've you know figured out a way to continue doing your own work to be involved with movies and you know really kind of you know open up the uh, the the parameters of your talent and interest. Now I don't know what your relationship is with Bob Dylan at this point, but what what do you feel when you like because he's out there all the time, man. I mean he lives out there. Yeah. And, you know, and it's so clear in like the last waltz and everything else that, you know, the road means something. It has both light and dark and it, and it's it's a hell of a place to to spend your life in a way. What what do you make of of Bob Dylan at this at this point? I mean, it's a it's a beautiful thing. He can't he can't need the money. He obviously needs the road. And and what what part does how where does he stand in your mind and in your heart? Do you have a relationship with him still? I well, I think that. There was a long time when Bob didn't go out in public and play. Yeah. Many years. Yeah. Um, and then it came back to him, and then, you know, he went and did some more. And then he found, he found that it was a big part of what he loved. Yeah. And so... He's just going to stay out there until, you know. <laughs> yeah, until and, whatever and, happens, happens. Until, and yeah, he's going to stay out there as long as he can. And I I can only imagine that he just loves it. Yeah. And it's who he is. Yeah. And I applaud it. Yeah. Do you talk to him? I can't. How do you talk to him? He's on the road all the time. Yeah. 
I've I've made I've made some calls. I've yeah. sent some messages to right. him. Yeah, yeah. You know, just saying, you know, uh, we we got to catch up sometime. Yeah. But it's like, whoops, there he goes again. He's, yeah, yeah. You know, now yeah. he's over here. Nope, he's back in Australia. He's it's like crazy, right? Yeah. And so, God bless. Yeah. Well, it was great talking to you, sir. Thank you. Really fun. I thought that was great. It was great talking to him. I like hearing about that time. I like hearing the arc of his life and the arc of music. And I hope he enjoyed it. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF needs, tour dates. Get on the mailing list, posters, contact info. All right. I got I to gotta do the show for Thursday because I'm, uh, I'm going to take a little break. Haven't had one in a little while. So on Thursday, if I seem detached or my tone is not right for God knows what will happen this week, it's because I'm uh, I'm away. I'll be back. All right? Be a good American. Boomer lives! <laughs>